0: Welcome to The New Note. I'm your host, Vaughn Nkosi, coming to you by way of the Institute for Local Innovations. This session is with my friend and colleague, Erica Crenshaw. Retired at age 40, Erica has had an amazing entrepreneurial journey in the finance space, including time on Wall Street, other parts of the U.S. and the globe, during and post-graduation from Florida A&M University. She also interned as a teenager at one of the nation's three-letter agencies. She has had a passion for and a commitment to education. She ran a thriving residential and environmental inspection company in the greater New York area and founded and led a finance and accounting firm in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which she sold and subsequently retired. I think you will find her journey extremely fascinating, so let's get started. I definitely wanted to jump in and keep it breezy, I like to say. Just keep it breezy. Hit it.
1: So, I was born in Washington, D.C., and my parents moved to the southern part of Prince George's County when I was two years old. And I would honestly describe my family as traditionalist. We ate dinner together every night at 630. We went to church on Sundays. And there were really high expectations that were set for myself and my sister, who is five years younger than me. And the expectations were really around education. It was very clear that we were expected to go to college and honestly, been on to grad school as well. My grandparents went to both undergrad and grad school. My grandfather graduated from Fayetteville State University. And my grandmother graduated from Elizabeth City State University. Then they both went on to uh, NYU and Manhattan. So that was the expectation that was set for our family based on our grandparents. My father went to Morehouse College undergrad and George Washington University for law school. His brother went to Hampton University, and my mom went to Federal State University for undergrad and then to Bowie State for grad school. So that is the expectation.
0: You know, a lot of African-Americans migrated out of the South during the, the Great Migration. Talk about your grandparents migrating North, or did they or did they not?
1: They chose not to migrate North. And it's funny that you're mentioning that because I recently read Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson, and she writes about folks migrating North, and the reason that they did so was most of them obviously to find work uh, and a better quality of life and to get out of the Jim Crow South. My grandparents, after attending NYU, chose not to do that. They chose to return to North Carolina for really four reasons. One, they thought it was a better quality of life where they were in North Carolina which was Fayetteville, North Carolina. Secondly, they were armed with graduate degrees. So you're talking about, this is the 50s, and these are Black Americans who have graduate degrees from a white institution, which was NYU. They went back, my grandfather became a principal, and then subsequently, a professor at Fayetteville State University and my grandmother was a math teacher in the public school system. And then third, which is really important, they actually had land. My grandfather was born in his house that was given to his parents by a white couple. So they actually had property and that property is still in our family today. And then lastly, I would say other family members, which would be my grandfather's siblings in particular, who did not have degrees, were entrepreneurs. And they didn't, the, the term entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship wasn't around. They didn't actually say that then, but they created work for themselves. So they were caterers and contractors. And in fact, my maternal grandmother was the only black florist in Fayetteville. So if there was a wedding or a funeral, you got your flowers from Reese Florist. And this was important because her husband, my grandfather died of leukemia when my mother was only eight years old. So my grandmother was the sole provider in the family And she used her earnings to send my mother to college. So those were the reasons why, from my understanding, after having a conversation with my father, after reading Warth With Other Sons, I needed to understand why didn't Oma and Opa, which is what we call my grandparents, why didn't they stay in New York? Why did they return to North Carolina? And those were the reasons that he provided me. And then my parents left North Carolina
0: and moved to the D.C. area. So you have the entrepreneurial influence. So let's talk about the influence that your parents had on you.
1: My father was and still is a huge influence in my life. And my mom was very much a confidant. I could talk with her about any problems with friends from elementary school to middle school. And then when I started dating in high school, she shared lessons about God. Moms know what's up, and they can steer and guide a little differently without mm-hmm. being too emotional about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: What's really funny is that my parents actually thought I was going to be a boy. So, I was going to be named Eric Jr. Obviously, I came out a girl, so they named me Erica. But they reared me as if I could do anything without setting limitations on me because I am a girl. So, that high expectation did not change. So, I really appreciated that because my father really helped me have the confidence when I started working in male-dominated environments.
0: You had mentioned some traditional expectations around college and graduate school. Any other um, expectations during that time?
1: Well, one very important expectation (laughs) was that I was going to become a Delta. So I was going to write for Delta Sigma Theta sorority because <laughs> all of the men in my family were Omegas and all of the women were Deltas. So I was going to go to college, I would go to grad school, and I was going to write for Delta Sigma Theta. And sure enough, I, uh, I fell in line and I <laughs> became a, a Delta.
0: You are listening to The New Note. This is where we talk with transformational, next generation, mid-career, bridge, Encore, and emeritus entrepreneurs. So let's talk about your 8, 9, 10. You, you, know, you come up through grade school. Anything jump out at you during that time? So in
1: grade school, I would say that is when I started to develop my passion for sports and particularly softball and One of the things that my father was very clear about was that although my coach wanted me to play, I was a pitcher, so this was Boys and Girls Club, he always placed me in that position. My father taught me early on that I needed to learn and be curious about all the positions, not just one. Hmm. You know, life is like that sometimes. When you're asked to, because he wanted to be sure, like, if, for whatever reason, first baseman is out, you need to be ready to play first base. If shortstop is out, you need to be ready to play shortstop and be curious enough about these positions to learn the differences between playing first base and shortstop or outfield. So that was important for me. And I, I oftentimes reflect back on that because I think in life, sometimes you or act to lead in an area where that's not necessarily your focus. And my focus at the time, my focus was pitching. I was just focused on being the best pitcher that I could possibly be. And he wanted to be sure that I understood all the other positions. And gotcha. so just having that confidence to lead in other areas, I oftentimes do reflect on that because that's given me confidence to step outside of the box that sometimes the world tries to put you into and just say, yeah. I'm capable of doing more than what you think I'm
0: capable of doing. And I can nice. have a greater influence. Nice. How did the coach take that request by your dad? Do you remember?
1: Well, it wasn't so much a request. It's just being prepared. And I okay. never asked to play a different position, but sometimes I was placed in a different position. I was still the lead pitcher, but it doesn't mean if my game is off in terms of pitching, it doesn't mean that I should be taken out of the game. That just means that yeah. I need to play I could potentially play a different position.
0: Gotcha. And you found that self in that position sometimes where it's like, okay, my game is off, I need to switch.
1: That's right. My game is off, so, and I was oftentimes, I was placed as a shortstop. My game is off, so I'll play shortstop. shortstop. I wasn't tall enough to play first base. (laughs) (laughs) So, nothing for me, I couldn't really get around that. Uh, But my arm was strong enough to play third baseman, and I could play shortstop. So, those were the positions that I would still place in the inner field, uh, I never played outfield much, but I still was rotated in the in the inner field when my game was off in terms of pitching. And, mm-hmm. and when I reflect back on it, I reflect back on, A, always being prepared to lead in any position mm-hmm. and not being placed on the sidelines. I mean, that's the idea, is not being put on the sidelines just because your game is off in this one area.
0: Mm. I like that. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like sports for you may have given you quite a few lessons.
1: There are a lot of lessons that you can learn from sports and just the the teamwork and um, the relationships that you build. But sports never defined me. I was very much an academic as well, I was a page. To senator in high school. I was also crowned Miss Hospitality for the state of Maryland and won an all-expense-paid trip to
0: Hawaii. How old were you then?
1: I was was 16 then. So I was very much an
0: academic. This is your host, Vaughn Nkosi. You have been listening to the New Note podcast with my colleague Erica Crenshaw. Erica provided some interesting lessons on differentiating networks beginning in high school.
1: I also learned during that time that it's important to have different social networks. So my Hmm. team was one social network, but I also had a network at my church where I was very involved. There was obviously the network at school. But it's interesting because my network at school, I viewed as more of a business network, meaning that those folks were more associates than actual friends necessarily. We're talking about high
0: school now, right?
1: We're talking about high school. Yeah. Okay, all they right. Were, Just checking. They were and I was very popular in in high school, meaning that I was treasurer of course, I feel like I've always been treasurer of every organization. Um, <laughs> I was treasurer. <laughs> I was treasurer of the National Honor Society, treasurer of the SGA. And the only reason I ran out for treasurer is because I knew I wanted to be in business or major in business, I should say. But it felt very much like I was checking boxes that I needed to check in order to go to college and to get accepted into the school of my choice. Whereas my other social networks were just that they, were, they felt more social and you know, I had deeper relationships and deeper friends. And I'm actually still friends, folks I'm still friends with today.
0: So let's jump back to this because I'm thinking, where did that come from? To say, okay, I'm in high school. And these networks are for potential business uh, for the future, college application, getting into the, I'll just put in air quotes, right school. Where did that come from? from for a 14, 15, 16-year-old, thinking that way?
1: Well, what I think is a part of it is my DNA and knowing when it's all about business and knowing when it's more casual. The other piece of it, I think, is about the expectations that my family set as well, When you're in this environment, you handle business. When you're in these other environments, then you kind of let loose and let your hair down. And I was so busy in high school with classes, with the AP classes that I was taking, with all the organizations that I was a part of. These were responsibilities. So it was very much, let's take care of business. We're going to handle business. And then when I'm at church or I'm hanging out with my girlfriends from church, we're really, we're hanging out. So it was almost a separation between the business mindset versus a social mindset. Lo and behold, the folks that where I had the the social mindset, where I was actually hanging out and just being a teenager, those are the deepest relationships. And I'm still friends with those folks. And of course, it was just almost a continuation from the business. It was fun. I enjoyed it. But I actually quit the team my junior year because my coach started saying that I could get a scholarship. And I said, what? (laughs) I'm not interested in getting an athletic scholarship. And I still remember him. remember saying that. And he looked at me very odd uh, Uh because he had been speaking with universities about me actually pitching.
0: How did you handle keeping those compartments in compartments?
1: Well, I think one, I was able to do that with one in middle school and then up through high school until maybe the 10th grade when our path just started to differ. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I was focused on where am I going to go to school, Boxes I need to check in order to get into the school of choice and she went down the path of skipping school. Um, not that I didn't do any skipping, not that I didn't skip school, <laughs> but I did get my work done. <laughs> so, okay. It was <laughs> like, I was this perfect angel because that's not the case. Um, but I got my work done. Our path went two different ways. Not that my mother actually said you can't be friends with her, but we had enough conversations about friends and influences for me to know that Following her down this path, I could be pregnant and not fulfilling the goal or meeting the expectations that I have now embodied, that my parents have set, but I have now set for myself as well, just because of the long history. So I was very clear. It was incumbent upon me to make the right decision.
0: And Mm -hmm.
1: that is where I was able to divorce the school slash business relationship from the more social relationships with folks that were going to school, that had the same vision and goals that I had.
0: You are listening to The New Note. This is where we talk with transformational, next-generation, mid-career, bridge, encore, and emeritus entrepreneurs. Let's jump to college. How did you decide on where you went and that experience?
1: Yes. So beginning 12, 13 years old, I was going to Hampton University to major in business. <laughs> 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 Period. No one could tell me any. any general. <laughs> um, until a recruiter called from Florida a University. I was in okay. history with a guy who had already decided that he was going to FAM and he started telling me about it. And he actually had the recruiter to call me. The recruiter mm-hmm. called me and told me about the School of Business and, and Industry at Florida A&M University. And I started mm-hmm. doing research on it and discovered that you had all these National Merit Scholars. The year that I went to FAM, we had more National Merit Scholars than Harvard for mm. That were in the School of Business and Industry. They talked to me about the dynamic internships. They talked to me okay. about the investment, the oratorical classes, everything. I was sold. And then my good friend, part of my social network at church, I asked mm. her if she had ever heard of Florida AM before. And she says, Well, of course. Everyone in my family has gone to FAMU, and I'm going to FAM. I said, what? (laughs) She became my roommate, and she's one of my Hmm. very best friends. Um, So that is why I chose FAM was because of the business school. And at the time, I thought I wanted to go to law school after actually going to business school. And Sam has a five-year MBA program. And so I said, well, if I still decide to go to law school, it'll cut a year off of schooling because it's a five-year MBA versus getting right. to an MBA in, in two years. So that is how I chose Sam.
0: Mm, interesting. So <laughs> how did your, um, was it your uncle who went to Hampton?
1: My uncle did go there, yes.
0: And so how did he feel when you started? took off the sweatshirt and traded it into Yeah, my uh,
1: uncle went to Hampton. So, well, you know, <laughs> it wasn't a pressure. The I think the disappointment honestly came from my grandfather hmm. who wanted me to go to Spellman because my dad went to Morehouse. Gotcha. Right. He wanted me to go to Spellman. They took me down to, to Spellman. I viewed the campus and I said, they have economics as a major and I'm interested in international business and I told my mom I said mom I don't want to be in a classroom for a girls." <laughs> 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 said, so this is a 17 year old right? I don't want to be in a yeah. classroom for a girl and she says Erica you'll take some classes with the Morehouse men beginning in your sophomore year and I said no can't do it so I decided on FAMU and I'm so thankful that I did best consecutive well, year of my life Undoubtedly. Excellent.
0: Without a doubt. Yeah. The next part of our conversation, Erica shares a pivot point in her life as she and her family had to cope with illness and loss.
1: So one of the turning points in school, I was 17 when my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, and at the time she was 45. Uh, okay. I didn't honestly realize how ill she I knew she was ill and Mm -hmm. she was obviously going through through chemotherapy but I didn't realize how ill until I started reading pages and pages two or three years worth of notes from her doctors and Mm -hmm. determined how severe the illness was at the time and the surgery and how my parents really did what I would say was is a, they really did a good job in terms of shielding us so that we didn't have to worry about it. Even though she was in the house and we saw it, we didn't really fully understand the gravity of it. That was a big deal at at seventeen.
0: So when you said reading pages and pages of mm-hmm. notes, this was. During or years later? No, yeah.
1: just recently, after my diagnosis, I asked my dad, I kept peppering him with questions to try to understand my mom's cancer and mm-hmm. to see if there were some similarities or what we could possibly do different, what the doctors could do mm-hmm. differently, and, mm-hmm. and he mailed me a packet of doctor's notes, wow. and it was just going through all of her notes, and it, the doctor captured her emotions during that time, which she was which she was in great spirit, honestly. He even captured when she wasn't able to, to uh, attend one chemo session because she was taking me down to college. It captured her visiting me in Chicago during one of my internships. And uh it just it captured a lot of details that included some of my milestones <laughs> and her oh, reaction wow. and wanting to be a part of certain milestones. So it was really it was really interesting uh reading and and her interviewing certain doctors, almost a journey that was not unlike my journey in terms of interviewing doctors, peppering them with questions. Uh, And it even says in some of her notes that she asked really good questions. She had great questions regarding this medicine. Um, She didn't like this particular doctor, so she decided to change Mm -hmm. because, you know, X, Y, Z. So it was really interesting to, to read that. But that's just something I recently read. But during that time at a 17, you know, when I'm 17 years old, and sure, my sister sure. at the time was 12, right. she really fully didn't understand the impact and the toll that it took on our family.
0: Do you remember how your father was during that time? Or you just didn't pick up on how it might have been affecting him?
1: No, I didn't. And my father is conservative and he's very quiet in terms of his demeanor mother her is more animated, more outgoing. She's a, c- a complete extrovert, um, whereas my dad's more of an introvert. What I do remember is I remember one time having a um, typical teenager, having an argument with my mom about something, and my dad stepping in and kind of shielding her and protecting her and saying, listen, when I say shielding her, telling me just to cut it out, and stress starts to inflame for cancer, and it um, it can diminish its recovery time, so that is when he kind of stepped in. And it and my father is a very very patient guy, so when he gets upset, I know that I've really done something wrong because yeah. he's always been very patient, and I would it would always hurt me when I see my father get upset because I know I've done something really bad. For him to get to the yeah. point where he is really chastising me, I know I've done something wrong. But I remember that time when he just told me to cool it, you know, and stop having arguments with my mom.
0: <laughs> now, so was he... So so did he just say, you know, Erica, cut it out, cool it, You've you're going too far? Or did he actually say... You're affecting your mom's recovery. Yeah,
1: he said you're affecting her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That okay. Was All right. Those were his words. Right.
0: Her transition, uh, where were you? FAMU, what? Where? where were
1: you? I was actually in China. Oh, wow. when that happened. Uh, still matriculating through through FAMU in the graduate program uh, at that point. This was in 99. I had just landed okay. and I got a call from her saying that she had gotten a call from her doctor that the cancer had metastasized and had gone to her heart. Um, mm-hmm. And my dad traveled He's probably been over forty countries. Was actually had just left that evening, and he was headed to London. So he had to turn around and catch the next flight back to the states. And I didn't believe it. I was, you know, completely shocked, just kind of everything, mm-hmm. and said, "Oh, they don't know what they're talking about. You'll be fine, et cetera, et cetera." Kind of mm-hmm. went on with with life. And then in March of 2000 is when she actually passed away. And I was with her when she passed. And even then, I still didn't believe it. It's like, she actually, mm-hmm. as she's in our house. My dad had cleared out his study because she wanted to be home. And yeah. he had the hospital bed in his study. And we were saying a prayer. And she passes away. And my prayer was that God will bring her back like he did Lazarus. Like, it will be just fine. Mm-hmm. So I was so tired. So I go to bed and I wake mm-hmm. up the next morning and she's gone. And I'm asking yeah. my dad, I'm like, where did she go? Why? Where is mom? He's like, you know, Erica, we've had, had the ambulance to come. She had to, you know, she's, she's gone. And I'm still kind of in denial. Like, she can't be gone. Like, I just prayed that she's going to come back, like, last. I mean, literally thinking this, that she was going to come back to life. Um, so that, But I was just thankful that I was actually with her at that sure. time. I was really thankful how, that I was able to do that. That, was, that I was there with her.
0: Yeah. How old were you?
1: Yeah, I was 24. My One. sister was a sophomore in college. My dad and I drove down to William & Mary to get her. Um, okay. So,
0: yes. So, with that transition, now you said you were in China when you first got the call. Yes, it was like a year earlier. Because you have mentioned to me before about speaking Mandarin in China. So, can we talk about how that came to be?
1: So Sam you, which is why I always say those were the best consecutive years of my life for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It was wonderful in terms of exposure. It was great Mm -hmm. in terms of relationships and long-lasting friendships. And it was just a great environment to do whatever you desire to do. If you were aggressive enough, if you asked enough questions, and Mm -hmm. you were persistent, doors would open for you. Mm, And that is really what happened. So when I stepped on campus my freshman year, there was a panel of five-year MBA students who were in the five-year program, and they, they were in the grad program at the time. And I recall one guy just coming back from China, and he was talking about his experience being there and being a black man in China in the, in the 90s for a extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm a freshman. So I marched into the internship office in the School of Business and Industry. I said to the coordinator there, I would like to go to China. And she says, well, what year are you? <laughs> and <laughs> I said, I'm a freshman. And she says, well, you know, that's for grad <laughs> And I said, oh, I know, but I'm in the five-year program, so when the time comes, I want to go. So they will only send two a year. And wow. so I said, well, when the time comes, I want to go. So what I learned very quickly from an upperclassman was that if you want an opportunity in industry, and an internship through the School of Business stay in the internship office so I became hmm. close friends with the coordinator so anytime an opportunity came up she thought about me yeah so that was really my my first lesson in the importance of relationships mm-hmm. and networking
0: and when you mentioned your dad's demeanor and then your mom so I take it you mm-hmm. were like your mom I, yes. Outgoing. <laughs> outgoing, <laughs> bubbly I'm probably
1: ninety percent like my mom.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: In terms of personality. Yeah.
0: Right, right. Knowing you as much as I do, uh, yeah, <laughs> you are Miss Congenial, bubbly, not CIA conservative. So Right. <laughs> <laughs> <That's
1: funny. laughs> Although a, I did I got- I was asked to join the CIA and <laughs> burn them down.
0: You know, you need all of oh, really? as well. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. I'd love to hear that <laughs> that recruitment story. You are listening to The New Note. This is where we discuss the life influences that have shaped transformational leaders, how they have walked in the world, and the paths they have taken that have brought them to where they are today and may lead them tomorrow.
1: So my first internship was with the CIA. Now my granted, my dad actually got me that internship, but the process was a six month vetting process. I wrote papers on research and technology. Afterwards they asked that I apply full time after school. And this is where you're kind of naive as a as a eighteen year old. Uh, I told my dad that that because they, they gave me a bonus at the end of the internship. I told my dad and he says no. You want to focus on business. So the next day I go back and tell my supervisor that (laughs) my dad says that I should focus on business. She goes in and tells one of her colleagues and I overhear the conversation. They're in their office and I'm thinking to myself, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. So from there, because I say in the internship office, that following year, my sophomore year, I was on the trading desk at Deutsche Bank in New York. The year after that, they called me, and I went to Citibank Jamaica. Uh, and I was actually had it. I was going to enroll in some classes to take some summer classes, so I didn't do that. And then mm-hmm. I was also in Minnesota with 3M,
0: and okay.
1: and then I went to Chicago with Prudential Capital. So that was an eight or eight or nine months internship. And then from there, I went to China for a year, and okay. yep. And from there, I actually wanted to travel around the world. I was having a ball.
0: <laughs> I bet you were from what I'm from what I'm hearing, Jamaica, China. Uh, yes, did you mention- I was
1: having not- a ball. Yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, it
1: wasn't honestly. It wasn't until my my friend that. I, I think I mentioned she's one of my my close friends who was my roommate all the way through. She said I came back home for Christmas. This is while I was in China, and she said, "Erica, you know." I said, "Yeah, I'm thinking about doing this around the world trip." And she says, "Erica, you should probably just go ahead and finish your classes and get out." And I said, mm-hmm. "Well," she's like, "Yeah, no, everybody's going to be gone by the time you get back right. from China. You're not going to. Everybody's graduated. Everyone's going to be gone." I was like, "Everybody?" Mm-hmm. And I started naming people. It's like, yep, they graduated last <laughs> semester. Yep, <laughs> so, um, so, if it wasn't for her, I guess I still remember the conversation. I would probably have done the around the world trip and okay. I would have actually graduated <laughs> because I was going from one internship to another. Got mm-hmm. myself together and decided to graduate and start applying for, for permanent jobs, I should say.
0: So I was thinking when you were talking about these internships, I thought these were like summer internships. No, they weren't just no, the no, summer? No. Oh, okay. awesome.
1: Gotcha. Some of them spanned over two semesters, and oh wow, uh, oh yeah, yeah. They weren't doing the some. Some of them was doing the semester. Um. Mm-hmm. So no, it certainly wasn't. Yeah, no, gotcha. it wasn't over the summer. Mm-mm.
0: So you're meeting very interesting people. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're meeting people who didn't see many young african-american women and mm-hmm. intrigued intrigued by that and just opening all kinds of doors inviting you out to meet people dinners and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff it must have been extremely eye-opening give us some um, maybe one or two things that might have jumped out at you you're listening to the new note in my interview with erica crenshaw and in the next section she is talking to us about the importance of having a mentor during her time trading currencies on Wall Street as a teenager,
1: I would say the first experience one at Deutsche on the trading desk. I was trading currencies. Yeah, so it was the FX trading desk. How old were you? I'm <laughs> nineteen. Keep, yeah, you're so nineteen. I'm nineteen, and right. this is, this was obviously before the euro. So you had all your currencies, you had the lira, you had the sterling, the pound sterling. So you had all of the European cu- currencies and this, mm-hmm. that's the desk that I was on. So I had to, it was very, now I'm 19, New York, first time in New York, yep. staying at the 92nd Street Y on the Upper East Side. I know the There place. were other college students from Howard, Hampton, from some of the Ivies that were also staying there. They're going Mm -hmm. out. They're hanging out on the weekends, at night. I am stuck in my, what was like a little dorm, Mm -hmm. studying, trying to come up to speed on how these currencies work. Um, the acts, the sales, like just trying to act and the buy. So trying to understand how they operate and how you actually trade these currencies and what the spread is between the, the different currencies. So really coming up to speed on all of this lingo. And because I was on a trading desk, it was very, very much a sink or swim environment. Absolutely. And either everything was extremely fast paced, male dominated. Yep. I'm a black female from Florida AM University and mm-hmm. I uh, needed to develop a friend. And that is where the relationships and developing networks and having someone who can help guide you is important regardless of who the individual is. So in this case, I befriended an assistant who was from the island, so she understood the culture. I was just yes. learning it, learning it, mm-hmm. and no one mm-hmm. was actually taking me under their wing. From none of right. the professionals, I would say, were taking mm-hmm. me under their wing to help me learn the ropes to skip and the ropes to jump. But she did. She took time out. We would go to lunch together. We would talk, and that is when, from her, I learned that. I could not hang out like the other kids. Mm. I needed to really have my nose in a book. As soon as uh, the school let out, but as soon as I I left the office, which on a trading desk, you actually leave at a relatively good time. I mean, when when the market closes. So I was able to leave, do what I needed to do, work, et cetera, et cetera. That was critical for me. She was really influential. My lesson that I learned with that is that you never know who's going to influence you and you have to be open to all types of people because you never know where your favor is going to come from. And as a Christian, I believe that God blesses you through people, but Mm -hmm. you have to be open enough and be humble enough to see who it is. He's going to put into your life to bless you at that point. And again, it wasn't one of the professionals, but it was
0: one of the assistants. She took a liking to you. She helped you navigate what were some of the things that she might've told you that you were willing to share that she gave you that, you he helped you through that maze. Uh-uh. It
1: was mainly her advice in terms of the importance of just preparing myself when I walked and walked on the trading floor. Because the way, a tra- the, or the trading desk, the way it operates is that, well, one, there are no doors. You're sitting on a desk with everyone. And right. you can get embarrassed very easily mm-hmm. if they're peppering you with questions and you don't know the answer to them. She also told me excuse me, sort of who to watch out for and mm-hmm. who to follow in the sense that I could emulate their behavior. She was one of the head traders from France. She did not befriend the male traders at all. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. She had very, she was very kind of, just kind of frank conversations with them, not really socializing or engaging with them. And, um in a friendly way, if you will. So she talked about her but mainly, it was be ready because they are going to call on you. Just because mm-hmm. you're an intern sh- on a uh, just because you're an intern doesn't mean that they're not going to engage you. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to the almost a lesson, the softball lesson, which was yes. you may right now you may be the pitcher, but you need to be prepared to play any position yes. on that field. So uh-huh. yes, you're this intern, you're supposed to keep your head low, but be prepared because they're going to call on you for something to know something to help with something. so prepare yourself, understand what's happening. understand these different currencies, understand how they how they trade. no no one's expecting you to be the trader overnight, but you do need to have some basic knowledge and understanding. Yes, you got in, you passed the, you went through the interview, everything was fine, but that was just the beginning. Now you've actually been thrown into the deep end of the pool. Will you be able to swap?
0: It's just something Hmm. that, yeah. Okay. And how did you get to the place where you figured out these other interns were coming from these other schools and they were partying on the weekend and you were like, Ooh, I got to keep my nose in the book and get up to speed on these currencies. Because they were older than you, they had more experience. What no, was No, uh, they
1: were the same. They were not at Deutsche. They were at other companies around I see. the city. Yeah, I, I was see. at Deutsche. Do- I was the only one at Deutsche on the trading floor. I did have there was another Sam Ewan that was with me at the same time. He was in the corporate aunt at Deutsche Bank, where she had it kind of easy breezy. (laughs) So he was hanging out with the other (laughs) interns and sort of hanging, hanging out. And I still remember...
0: Just a quick note here. I was really moved by this next pearl Erica shared about honoring her father's wishes.
1: When my parents dropped me off, my dad told me not to go past 116th Street. He made it very clear that I could not go into Harlem. And I okay. remember one of the guys that was interning. He said, "You mean to tell me you're gonna you're gonna be in New York this entire time, and you're gonna listen to your dad and not go into Harlem?" And mm-hmm. I said, "Well, he trusts me to be to not go into Harlem. He told me not to go into Harlem, so I'm not going to Harlem." And so, of course, yeah. when I actually Graduate and start working at Goldman. Of course, I moved into Harlem. <laughs> right, right. But shows a reverence for my father to obey him and yeah. to do what he asked of me, which was not to go beyond 116th Street, which, which, yeah. is, which I didn't do.
0: There's a lot of lessons there. You get the, the help from uh, an assistant to help you navigate. So now you're well. At that point, you're 19. So you get through the internship because we went New York. You mentioned Chicago. You mentioned China. You mentioned. Were you in? Did you say Minnesota, Wisconsin? That's right,
1: Minnesota, St. Paul, yeah. Minnesota.
0: Your classmate comes back and it's like, hey, we're all leaving. You're still gallivanting around the world. That's right. Uh, you're, gonna, <laughs> you're gonna wrap. You're gonna wrap this up. Uh, so you, I guess you decide, you decide to buckle down and, and finish your coursework. Let's jump on the other side of that.
1: When I got back and I, I buckled down, I started interviewing with banks. I knew that I was interested in investments, interested in the stock market, interested in how the stock market moves, interested in researching and analyzing companies. Yeah. So I applied JPMorgan Chase, who so at the time mm-hmm. it was just JPMorgan. I applied at Morgan Stanley and Mm -hmm. I applied with Goldman Sachs as a sales side research analyst. So I get offers from all three. And this is where my husband comes in to play. My then boyfriend, actually then he was just a friend. So I talked to him (laughs) about school.
0: Mm -hmm. Where did you meet him?
1: Lauren was Lauren and I were both in the student run company Investment. He was the CEO of the company, and I was just a a part of it on campus through the School of Business and Industry. And we were friends. Uh, We weren't close friends. I always thought that he was very smart and extremely nice. He was already in New York, and he came back to campus during Alpha Week to speak to some undergrads about working on Wall Street. After it was over, and we talked, and I said, I've gotten three offers. I'm trying to figure out which one can we get together and have lunch. So he turns lunch into 8 o'clock dinner. And okay. I knew at that time, after dinner was over, that I was going to marry him. Um, really? I knew that he was the one. No, it was no question. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's oh, not wow. funny. it was that no, funny. No question yeah. in my mind. Well, first, it was an 8 o'clock dinner. The waiter comes over at 1130 and says, you all need to order because the kitchen is getting ready to close. We have been talking for three and a half hours and had not even ordered any food. I knew that he was the one. But what's interesting is that that was in April and I had prayed a month before that God blessed me with, the man that I am supposed to marry. My first Mm. prayer when I got to campus was to bless me with someone that I can grow with. And he did. I had a boyfriend for five years. Everything was great. But I knew he wasn't the person that I was supposed to marry. And Mm. after our dinner, I knew that Lauren was going to be the one.
0: So you made the decision that he's the one. Where was his head?
1: Wasn't thinking what I was thinking. Of. <laughs> oh, okay. six hours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Right.
0: Okay. Okay. That, that's so funny. You are listening to the new note. The new note is where we discuss how the future isn't what it used to be.
1: We talked through it, and I talked to my dad, of course. Um, my mom had already passed by then, and uh, I decided to go with Goldman.
0: He recommended Goldman?
1: I think it was really looking at the opportunity. and Okay. Yeah, it was really examining the opportunity. And, and, and to be quite honest with you, the reason I chose Goldman over Morgan Stanley was mm-hmm. because of my experience at the trading desk at Deutsche The way Morgan Stanley set up, their associates are all together. They don't have Mm -hmm. individual, they don't have their own separate space. They're kind of more of a community type space. And I, and as a, when you're doing research, you're writing a lot. And I yes. knew that I needed an environment where I could just zone in and focus on my own. And this was kind of predates, I guess, the headphones and all that, the AirPods that right. I'm sure, sure people wear sure. all the time. So I needed my own space where I could really think. And not Mm -hmm. have to worry about distractions. Seeing Morgan Stanley and talking to their associates and and knowing that environment, I knew I would not excel necessarily in that type of environment, but just because I needed to be able to concentrate and focus. So that's just really knowing yourself and knowing what working conditions you need to have in order to succeed, you know, period. Gotcha. So that's why I ended up choosing honestly Goldman over Morgan Stanley. Is that sometimes it's just really small things can help you make a decision. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, and that mm-hmm. was it. And I didn't choose JP Morgan because after the interview the lady called me, she made mm-hmm. me an offer for investment banking division or yeah. department. And I said, Well, I never applied for investment banking. This was just after the acquisition. She's calling me to make me an offer for a position I never applied for. Um, mm. So I knew that was a red flag for me that I should not go with them. You could just tell that there, there was going to be some influx or changes. And sure enough, right after that, a lot of friends who did go with the bank, their offers got rescinded shortly afterwards because of the, uh, uh, the acquisition that took place.
0: What was the acquisition?
1: The acquisition was when J.P. Morgan bought Chase.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, you head to Goldman.
1: Get my apartment in Harlem. Now, how
0: did you explain that to Pop? Were you like? Oh, okay, he was Pop. fine with I'm it at
1: that point because I'm grown. Okay. yeah. Know, I'm 20 yeah. some year, years old. And yeah. Lauren lives in Harlem. Now, our courting period for two years mm-hmm. was completely long distance. So it was nice just to be in the same region yes. <laughs> at that point. And mm-hmm. fortunately, I ended up moving into a building next door to his, and we were okay. engaged for a year, and our buildings were next mm-hmm. door to each other.
0: And what? where were you? What street were you on?
1: 138th and Ashcombe.
0: All right. So yeah. you guys are yeah. there, you're working in, in Goldman. Any takeaways? Uh, I was on the sales
1: side, which yeah. meant that we would write about, we did research and we wrote about companies about their earnings mm-hmm. reports we did i did a couple of topical reports on uh, the apparel industry and footwear industry i worked 12 14 hour days i took mm-hmm. car service home every day i ate breakfast lunch and dinner at my desk and wow. on Fridays, i would leave at eight o'clock on Fridays, but I was back in the office again on Saturday. It was just a grueling schedule, whereas Lauren yeah. on the by side, his hours were much better. He would get home maybe eight o'clock every night where I was, I was getting mm-hmm. home at anywhere between 10 and 12 every night and leaving at five o'clock in the morning to get to
0: work. As you listen to Erica, I think you can tell what's coming next with these long hours working on Wall Street. But if you're not sure, keep listening. You're at Goldman. Was there a trigger for you?
1: So Goldman, Goldman was, it was a great experience in that I worked with some of the most talented and brilliant financial minds in the world, period, hands down. So Goldman obviously is a global leader in that regard, mm-hmm. and it was an environment and a culture that suited my personality. You move at a, a fast pace mm-hmm. of excellence at every step of yeah. the way, and that suited me very well from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. The trigger for me really goes back to the way I would describe my family would be we're traditionalists. We okay. had dinner every night at 6.30. We went to church on Sundays. And when I looked around at the the VPs and the partners, they yeah. had a lifestyle, okay. which was different from how I grew up and what I wanted for my family. My parents were married for 26 years before my mom passed away. And Lauren's yeah. parents will celebrate 53 years. And when I looked around and looked at the VPs, either not married, divorced, or or on second and third marriages, I knew then that I did not want to be them.
0: What did you attribute to them either not being married, being divorced, or multiple marriages?
1: Well, I attributed that to the workload. And the struggle is the fact that it's hard to have a relationship with someone that you don't see. And Mm -hmm. it is hard, even harder to have difficult conversations with someone that you rarely see or that you don't have any intimacy with. And you only develop that through communication. And Mm -hmm. if I can only communicate with you and have Thoughtful quality time with you on a Sunday—that's a problem, <laughs> <laughs> and we're living in the same house. Right. So that's a that's an issue, and yeah. it, I, I'll never forget when my VP was in Mexico, and there was an acquisition in the apparel space. Okay. And I, I, can't, I can't remember which company, but it was a company that we did not cover. Goldman did not cover this company, but okay. we needed to call her in Mexico. She's in Mexico on vacation. We had to wake her up at the crack of dawn um, to tell her about this. I think it was in the middle of the night, honestly, um, to tell her about this acquisition because we needed to get a report out. And mm. and that Phase, you want to be first in terms of getting the yes. reports out. A lot of that has sure. changed now because now it's more about mm-hmm. not just being first, but also the quality of the reporting. But during yep. that time, it was being first, getting the report, getting it out first, developing your thoughts. And I remember thinking, we don't even cover this company, but we have to get something out. And we're waking her up, and she's on vacation.
0: Mm-hmm. I said.
1: I do not want that to be me at all. So I needed to make a decision about how I wanted to evolve as a professional, how I wanted to Mm -hmm. spend my time. What was it that I was going to do next?
0: You are listening to The New Note. This is where we talk with transformational, next generation, mid-career, bridge, Encore, and emeritus entrepreneurs.
1: So I started researching franchises, and I researched a company called Service Master, and as I was reading through their annual report, the CEO was quoting Philippians 4, I think Philippians 4, 3, and and Service Master means to serve the master, and Mm -hmm. it's a Christian company, Christian-based uh, company, So that resonated with me and really appealed okay. to me, particularly as a Christian, to have a publicly traded company quoting mm-hmm. the Bible. So I really started researching it, had a conversation with Lauren, who's my husband at the time at this point. And we decided that, yes, we bought our first franchise, which was the Brooklyn Territory. And uh, if, it were, if Brooklyn were actually a city, it would be the fourth largest city in the country. ServiceMaster is a parent company, and their other companies, the subsidiaries are Terminex, which most people have heard of, Furniture Mech. Right. And we bought Amerispec, which mm-hmm. is a residential and environmental company, and we did a lot of environmental work and a lot of building inspections in in Manhattan
0: got it now um uh, Lauren was doing this with you, or this was your thing no, what, how did this work
1: at, no Lauren was still working on Wall Street and okay. I ran the company, didn't know anything about inspections, didn't know anything mm-hmm. about engineers, didn't know anything mm-hmm. about marketing. Uh, but I ended up becoming one of the uh, highest grossing owners in the company
0: within four years. As you listen to Erica's journey, you might be asking yourself, what is it about her that she would jump into an unfamiliar space? Well, here's your answer.
1: I attribute it to confidence and, Mm and always being able to not just people always talk about thinking outside of the the box, but I never want to be put in a box i I want to jump out of the box, I want to break it down and throw it away. This is what I like hmm. to do with boxes, and okay. I think when someone tries to put me into a box because everyone says, "How did you choose this? This is not your field. I would go mm-hmm. into." have marketing presentations with real estate agents and and contractors and they would say well your husband runs the company right and I said no Mm. I run the company (laughs) um well does your husband work in the business I said no he doesn't they could not understand how a female in the space with all men A male-dominated industry, and all of my employees were engineers. They were males, and they were older. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm probably 26, 27 at this time. And so they're older than me, and they couldn't understand why I even wanted to do this. And it was very Mm -hmm. simple. The numbers made sense. That's why Mm -hmm. I did it. (laughs) It was a great business model, and the numbers made sense with great yep. margins. So mm-hmm. that's why I did it. And yes, I needed to learn the business. And so right. that's what I did. Um, so I learned it, learned how to, to run it and learned how to, to market it and to really market the business and was able to grow it. And then we acquired four additional franchises as well. So I engineered the acquisition, uh, which meant obviously raising capital to do so. And I actually raised institutional money to do that because those franchises had been in existence for about 10 years and we were a smaller franchise buying a larger one. So it's really not allowing yourself to be put into a box, having the confidence to step outside of the box and, uh, and then quickly prepare yourself to lead.
0: At some point, you knew we would have to hit the issue of gender and race. So, if you had any questions about the coping strategies facing entrepreneurs of color, regardless of level of education and professional accomplishment, pay close attention. After the initial shock, any issues that you can think of or jumped out or?
1: It was absolutely without question gender. Um, okay. For me to be the face, not just the face in terms of kind of a marketing. Because there were mm-hmm. franchise owners who had women that were marketing. But to be the face and to be the owner and to have employees that were male and older, mm-hmm. that was really, I would say, shocked people. I will never forget giving a presentation in Westchester County mm-hmm. and the people just kind of looking at me like a deer in headlight in terms <laughs> of being this woman. And, I, and I'll never forget calling Lauren. Being so upset on the way home, and I was like, "Well, we have Condoleezza Rice," and <laughs>
0: uh-huh. <laughs> because
1: Condie wasn't like you know, being a uh, being a black woman in a male dominated, what I would consider a male dominated space when you're talking about national intelligence. But again, I was in Westchester, which is very yeah. different from Brooklyn, and right. uh, and and very and and Brooklyn is very different from Staten Island. So there were certain places in the five boroughs where I knew what to expect, how to expect it. So what I did out in Westchester, and I got this advice from one of my good friends whose father owned several McDonald's franchises. And he says, Mm -hmm. whenever there was a complaint, Erica, and this was in the state-owned franchise in the suburbs of Dallas, whenever there was a complaint, my father would have to have one of his white managers to come and talk to someone and if the manager wasn't there he would have to yeah. present himself as a manager not the owner of the McDonald's but as a manager wow. When she told me that that is when I hired a white female to be me in Westchester <laughs> um, because I could not get in the door I could get in the door but I wouldn't get any business necessarily it wouldn't it, it would be a futile exercise um, mm. going out having conversations with, folks in Westchester when I knew for sure that they weren't going to use me.
0: And what year was this? I'm trying to keep the timeline. This is the 90s?
1: This was between 2002 and 2009.
0: Oh, this isn't that long ago. For
1: seven years. No, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, 2009.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, I was going to give it the 90s. Even to me, the 90s wasn't that long ago. You're in the 2000s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely in 2000s. Yeah. Eh, I should. I'm not surprised, even in the 2000s. For um, that reality, because right. I know the look and I know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. The deer and headlights look As a listener to this podcast, I'd like to pose a question to you: Is there a difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur? Yes or no? The answer is definitely yes, and Eric and I are going to discuss those differences. Now, the other piece that jumped out to me, which is very interesting, when you said about the boxes. So a couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with a colleague here. We were talking about entrepreneurship and the same issue that you were talking about, multiple marriages, lifestyle, things like that. And he was talking about his business and what he had done in the past. I think he's 53, retired-ish. He said, Vaughn, there's a difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur. Uh
1: Uh-huh.
0: I said, okay. I said, let's talk about that. He recalled being at a closing table with a guy who said he wanted to sell his company. Got all the way to the closing table with the company that wanted to acquire his business. Mm-hmm. He would not sign the paperwork. Huh. Couldn't, couldn't do it. He fell in love with his business.
1: Um, his small it's emotionally business. attached.
0: He okay. said, the difference between an entrepreneur, we build things and we move on. That's right. We don't fall in love with these things. We create them and we, we use them for a while and, and we move on. So those were the two things that I wanted to cover, this issue of race and gender and that reality. And then what you said about building the boxes and then, okay, I'm done with that box. Right. You are listening to The New Note. This is where we discuss how transformational professionals started in life and how their career may or may not be where they originally envisioned it and may not be the same in the future. You moved from Wall Street to the franchise. Let's move on to your transition from that.
1: Yeah, so we yeah. did New York, Jersey, Pennsylvania, and then Baton Rouge. Um, and Baton Rouge, I went through this, because this was right after the stock market crash. That was a, a huge obstacle that we obviously had to, to, to overcome. Market yeah. crash in 08... In we are now in Baton Rouge, and this is 2009. Yeah, I bought the house in Jersey, but I also started doing inspections in Jersey as well. Okay. So I had the five franchises at that point, started doing inspections mm-hmm. in, in Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided to start a family in oh six. Now, where, where were you
0: living in New Jersey?
1: Somerset County and North Plainfield. Mm-hmm. The market crashes. We lose 50% of our life savings. No one's buying houses anymore. My husband wow. lost his job. And this is where prayer, having faith, and recognizing that my life is completely in God's hands really comes into play. Mm-hmm. And also seeing the resolve in my husband as well, because this was mm-hmm. the first time we had actually gone through something. He had another position within three months. We moved to Pennsylvania. We were there only for maybe a year and a half or so because that company got bought by Dow Chemical. Mm. And they asked him if he wanted to move to Midland, Michigan. And I said, Mm. nope, can't go to Midland, Michigan. But he needed to find another job again. We ended up moving to Baton Rouge. And it was during that time, Vaughn, that I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life it was clear that the spec business, the whole residential and environmental inspections, no one was, you actually have to buy a house in order to get it inspected. Now the environmental yep. work was still, that was still going well, but it was a small percentage of our total revenue. It wasn't insignificant, but mm-hmm. it was a smaller percentage of our total revenue. So I would either huh? have to, revamp the business model where I just focus on environmental services or think about doing something differently. And sure. I'm in Baton Rouge. Lauren is in the local magazine there because it's Baton Rouge, small town. This is a guy who has Wall Street experience and all of this experience and has moved into Baton Rouge. He tells a reporter that uh, we are both interested in the education space. And Mm -hmm. I was asked to help start a charter school in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And I accepted, enjoyed it because I just love startups.
0: So how old are you now?
1: So I'm 33 years old. I have a three-year-old. I helped start this charter school. I'm back to my Goldman, that pace. I'm back to the Goldman pace in Mm -hmm. a nonprofit space. I'm working 12 to 14 hours. But then I also had this hour-long commute between Baton Rouge and New Orleans and Mm -hmm. working these long hours and loving every moment of it. I mean, every single moment of it. I just absolutely loved it.
0: Have you noticed the reoccurring theme with Erica? Her ability to identify a need and implement strategies to fulfill that need? This is where she explains the genesis behind the last company she founded and led, providing financial services to nonprofit organizations to help them grow their top line. So let's back up a little bit then. So your transition out of the the franchise, how did you exit?
1: We wound those businesses. We wound the business down.
0: All right. So let's talk about going from charter school to execute now.
1: Being in that space, I had never been in the nonprofit space before. And it's very interesting when you think about different parts of the country. When you're in New York, or just maybe in the Northeast in general, and you are in finance, there is almost an expectation that you have an MBA. -hmm. If you're in finance, if you don't have an MBA, you better go get an MBA if you want to stay in finance in New York you know, for the most part, unless you're a trader, some traders don't have, don't have advanced degrees, but coming out of school in the 2000s, you know, that during that era, you got to go get an MBA period. Lauren and I obviously were both in finance and they asked us if we're a CPA. We couldn't understand why people were asking us if they're CPAs. One, there's not, Mm -hmm. there's not the wall street environment. You have these nonprofits And in the finance department of nonprofits, you have CPAs that are running the finance department of nonprofits. I saw that as a clear opportunity, an opportunity because I understand the difference between an accounting department and a finance department. Accounting departments are run by CPAs. Finance departments are run by CFOs. CFOs Mm -hmm. were pretty much absent, non-existent in the nonprofit space. Whereas the CPA was kind of the finance holy grail, but I realized that they were missing the strategic aspect of finance with just having a CPA on staff or involved and not having a a true finance person involved. So that's Mm -hmm. where the opportunity came about, where I recognized that there was an opportunity within the nonprofit space and decided to launch Execute Now. Yeah. I had my first client on July 1st, 2011. So, what we did was develop the wraparound service. So, we had the accounting piece of it where we would do your day to day accounting, and we had a CPA on staff who oversaw that. And then there was the finance piece where we did more projections, more strategy. And we had CFOs who worked that angle and helping. It was really about educating nonprofit nonprofits about the importance of having both and mm-hmm. that in order for you to really achieve whatever, whatever qualitative goals you have, you have to have yes. that strategic quantitative piece that a CFO can provide because yeah. they both have to work together. You can't have these goals and vision for your organization, for your company, for your nonprofit without having that strategic finance piece to to marry with those goals, mm-hmm. which is why companies have an accounting department and which is why they have a robust finance department. Mm-hmm. They both, they work together, but the CEOs work okay. with the CEO. CFO from a strategic standpoint, so yeah. that is where the add value for execute now and helping really nonprofits understand why the CFO was important because they're thinking we just need to see PA. But then when yeah. I started to write about how nonprofits fail. Due to a lack of financial leadership, it was Mm -hmm. easy to help executive directors understand that a CFO is critical to the success and longevity of their organization.
0: Erica and I got into the weeds on strategies for raising money, scaffolding funding, and leveraging dollars for nonprofit organizations, as well as explaining the raising of dollars before even starting a program and explaining the use of funds to funders. Erica also covered how she, in her current Encore status, is part of an educational program that raised a couple of million dollars of unrestricted funds before opening their doors in July of 2018, built on top of a year-long feasibility study. Those details are in a special version of this podcast, available to ILI patrons, along with expanded content discussed earlier related to power of place and the influence place and context have when dealing with issues on age, gender, and race. She and I also covered some lighthearted stuff. Interested in receiving the patron version of this podcast? Go to www.patreon.com backslash I-L-I 360 That's P-A-T-R. E-O-N dot com backslash I-L-I 360. Sign up and become a patron for as little as $1 a month.
1: I launched Execute Now after recognizing that there was a need for strategic financial leadership in the nonprofit space. I would not have done it otherwise. I could, if Got I just it. decided I was going to start a simple accounting firm, that mm-hmm. wouldn't have been very smart because there's too much competition for that. But I needed to differentiate myself somehow, and I did that by recognizing that there was a need.
0: This is excellent. You have taken your business acumen and experience into the nonprofit slash entrepreneurial space. Mm-hmm. To create, like you said, I love startups, right? You love startups. And you're, you're not just loving startups to love startups. Right? There's a research component to it.
1: You start it like you would any other business. It has mm-hmm. to make sense. And yes. you can't be one of the other 50000 nonprofits out there, <laughs> right? So you can't sure. not take that kind of, of approach because the dollars won't follow it. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if the dollars aren't following, then you really need to rethink your business
0: model. Excellent. We hope you have been enjoying this episode. Now it is time to hear about what happens when an entrepreneur knows the time has come to move on to their next new note. So there's a lot of stuff in there. From Execute Now, where does the, the break come from Baton Rouge to North Carolina? the why, yep. the move.
1: So it actually goes back to your comment about the, the entrepreneur and the business owner. Mm-hmm. When I launched Execute Now, I wanted to do a couple things differently than I did with Amerispec. One, I wanted to have a board. Okay. And my husband and I both agree that's probably one of the best decisions that we could have made. And we always tell that to new business owners, get a board. And it, that having a board of seven people that I reported to on a quarterly basis,
0: mm-hmm.
1: really helped me think through what my true exit strategy would be. And I always knew okay. I was going to exit, but it was just when and the timing uh-huh. of it. In 2007, I was in Essence Magazine. And one of the things that I had mentioned was that I wanted to retire by the age of 42 part of my exit strategy was that I wanted to sell the business at some point. My only regret was not selling it sooner. I sold the business within five years later. Mm-hmm. It was. So I, I launched it July 1st, 2011, sold it September 30th, 2016. My regret honestly was not selling it in two thousand and fifteen because I if I had sold it in two thousand and fifteen one I started a shift started to change in me in the latter part of two thousand and fifteen. I wasn't as excited. And I think when your passion for your company or any company or any environment that you're in begins to die some And that flame begins to go out just a little. It's harder to get up in the morning sometimes, or you don't want to go to a client meeting. That's when you need to start making a transition. Okay. So I wish that I had made the transition a lot sooner than at the five-year mark. I was focused on numbers, number of Mm -hmm. years, versus listening to my feelings about when to actually exit and the timing and the growth of the organization. There wasn't a big difference between year four and year five, if any. Just like somebody working at a company for too long when they should yes. go out on their A game versus going out on the B game.
0: So it was about the passion. Mm-hmm. Because when you initially said it to me, I was thinking you could have sold it for more a year earlier, but it wasn't And that too.
1: No, that too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that that okay. goes, but that,
1: go, but that okay. ties with the passion because I was and didn't want to be, but end up becoming the. F- sort of the face of the company and yeah. I was doing a lot of the speaking engagement. So I was mm-hmm. the one who was, business, I was business development. Yeah. And when yeah. you're, when your business development and your passion starts to wane that mm-hmm. there's a complete alignment between that and revenue, yeah. because if you're yeah. not developing the biz- business with the same energy mm-hmm. that you were developing it in years three and four, and it starts yeah. to wane in five, then your revenue is going to go down, or at least it's going to stay yeah. the same, right? Okay.
0: right. You're not yeah. necessarily
1: growing your top line. Mm-hmm. You can manage mm-hmm. your bottom line, which I'm very good at doing, but yes. you're not necessarily growing your top line. So those can't be divorced. They're one in the same, uh, particularly for, for smaller businesses. They're absolutely one in the same.
0: Nice. Great lesson there. So a couple of things that you brought up, having a board, keeping you on your toes, thinking about an exit, then when to sell, when not to sell. And your point was waking up in the morning and having that, ooh, I just love this thing. To, eh, uh, it's becoming a bit of a grind. It's becoming a right. job. It's
1: becoming work becoming yeah. now. It's,
0: it's becoming, <laughs> you're right, right, right. exactly. <laughs> and people tell you all the time, when you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You have been listening to Erica Crenshaw sharing her insights about for-profit and non-profit business startups including her own entrepreneurial journey with us. Listeners can also check out her bio at liquidstudios360.com. I want mm-hmm. to quickly go back to your Essence magazine article. What was the, what was the magic about retirement? Because you had told me that before when we met. Being retired mm-hmm. by the time you're ex-age. Where did that come from? Why was that match? Wait, you just seemed
1: really old to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when did you? When did you do the interview? How old were you when you did that interview?
1: I was. That was 2007. So I was 31. But it just seemed like it was so far away that it would be wow. great to just... Why 42? And I'm 42 now. Unfortunately, I was able yeah. to retire at 40. But yeah. it just seemed really old to me. It seemed like it was a long ways away, honestly. Hmm. And, and, honestly and and honestly, a part of that, I think, because I was 2007, my mom had been deceased by seven years. My yes. mom was first diagnosed at 45. She died at 52. So okay. if you have ever lost a parent, you never think that you are going to live past the age of your parents' death. 42 would give me a good 10 years to not work if I were, for whatever reason, die around the same time that my mom died. Wow! So when you have a parent who died early, you start to yes. feel and believe that you are also going to die early. Hmm. And um, so that was certainly a part of the thinking. I sold the business in September of 2016, and I, too, was diagnosed with breast cancer 30 days later. That was a a complete year of transition. We had moved to Charlotte. It was a challenging year, to say the least. Yes. Um, But it was also a year where our family grew closer as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that you told me about how you and your husband approach you, what you do with your money uh-huh. annually, plans, what you're going to invest in. I think you guys are doing, You aren't you investing in houses still? We I are, did I remember. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. How you structure that entrepreneurial space. So let's walk through that before my final question to you. So let's walk through. You moved to North Carolina. You uh-huh. You have sold your business. You're addressing your health. Needs mm-hmm. right? work, work, work for the first 15 years. Did the travel of taking a month off? Did you guys have an annual kind of we get away anyway? Or oh, this yes. part-
1: we Well, we started even this was when we were still in New York and, and both working crazy hours. We yeah. get away once a quarter. We have always been huge travelers and have okay. always enjoyed primarily traveling overseas the extent of the travel has changed since I was able to retire. So I've been able to travel for longer periods of time. And Lauren, because of his position, he has a lot more flexibility. Now he can't go for the Mm -hmm. whole summer, uh, but he can go for longer than a week.
0: (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, Right. So,
1: and, and so we do, we get away quite a lot. Now, for Lauren, who's still working, it is a part of a de stressor to really
0: get away. Got it. Okay. Excellent. This is your host, Vaughn Nkosi, and you've been listening to the New Note. If you like what you've heard, please follow us on iTunes and please remember to rate the show. You can also find us on social media. Search for us under New Note or Next New Note. Depending on your social media platform. when you see the jazzy saxophone watercolor logo, that's us. You're in a very unique situation because you're you're already retired, but you're not. You're doing your thing. The reason we call this the new note is because as entrepreneurs, again that you talk to the new mm-hmm. box. If you're an entrepreneur, there's always something new, right? Okay? For you, for another decade, as you're thinking about this nonprofit that you're co- co-founded, co-chair, that's a new note. But what else might you, what's cooking?
1: Nothing's cooking. And not even a okay. nonprofit. I am on the board. And, but I'm on the okay. boards. My new note is living <laughs> and enjoying okay. and doing exactly what I want to do. So what am I doing? I am working on my mandarin. I am okay. taking horseback riding classes. I'm uh, volunteering where I want to volunteer, mm-hmm. right? making a difference in the community where I want to make a difference. And I'm traveling the world with my family. So that is my new note. It's not starting anything else. Yes, we have the you know the real estate portfolio, but that's purely part of our retirement strategy. This is my new note.
0: Your new note is doing you.
1: Yep, doing exactly Any
0: what I wanted to do. <laughs> <doing it. laughs> Any last thoughts, anything that we might have missed you wanted to cover that jumped mm. out that we might have, you wanted some pearl of wisdom, some kernel. You've, you've given a lot of them. Before wrapping up, Erica provided an interesting set of values by which she and her family lived.
1: I've always encouraged people to develop their own set of family values, okay. and ensuring that that's instilled in their children, and that they actually operate within those family values on a day to day basis. And just like you have a company, we have core values. We have seven family values, and the first one is to serve God and others, and we do that okay. through community service and through giving. do give a lot in terms of just nonprofits and investing in different nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And the second is be wise. And that's using good judgment at all times and and also listening to wise people and reading good books that are actually going to strengthen you and um, instruct you as an individual and stretch your thinking. And the third is to demonstrate integrity. The fourth is be a good leader. The fifth, be good financial stewards. Uh, sixth is to work hard to be superb in everything that you do. And that's having discipline and focus. And the seventh is don't put limits on your potential or your vision. We stress in our household, no limits on the vision of your life. And don't let allow other people to put a limit on the vision for your life. Oftentimes people say, well, oh, she's good in X or he's good in Y. Well, why can't they be good in X and Y? You can put a limit on a person's life by just saying that they're good at one thing. When the factor of matter is that they could be good at several things. So those are our um, our family values.
0: I love it. How do you share those seven core values or principles for your family with others?
1: through different conversations but honestly we could do a better job of sharing it Mm Um, with mm-hmm. others. And I think through conversations and just through how we live our lives, um, mm-hmm. what we stand for, how, what people can expect from us and regardless of the environment. I mean, one of the things that Lauren's CEO always wants Lauren in the room because he knows Lauren is going to be truthful with him. And mm. he knows that he's okay. going to give him the absolute truth. And he knows that he can trust him. So we demonstrate that, which is the best way that we can could honestly do it we have not and probably something we should think about doing is really kind of sharing it the way i've just shared Mm -hmm. it with you and we try to live it the best way that we can and check each other on it if Mm -hmm. we have fallen short in
0: some way nice did you sit down one day and said you know what we need to have some core family values how did you get to that place
1: so that was Lauren. He's remarkable in that he is always thinking about our family from the standpoint of what we can do, where we need to be better, and Mm -hmm. are we prepared for what life is going to throw at us. Having that forethought and really thinking about our family from not just from today, but from 10 years from now. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so that was something that we were having a family Bible study and it was placed on his heart that we needed to do this so we actually came up with it together the three of us as a family Mm
0: -hmm. and um, and it's something that we use as our guiding principle. How old was Lydia when you guys started working on your family values?
1: Lydia was eight years old at the time.:
0: If you recall where we started out this conversation about why I go back to age eight, mm. with people, and this idea about your personality is pretty formed at age mm-hmm. eight. You're going to be who you yes. are, and these seven principles, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, she's going to talk about these seven guiding principles.
1: I do. Um, yeah,
0: shaping yeah. her and how she looks at, views the world, the walks in the world. She's
1: very much like Lauren in some ways. She's very logical. Mm-hmm. And so we teach her through articles when adults behave badly. We're able okay. to show her articles. This is an example where this adult did not use good judgment. And this mm-hmm. was a consequence mm-hmm. of this adult not using good judgment. An adult who wasn't, you know, a leader or didn't demonstrate integrity. And mm-hmm. what would you do differently or how, if it if they had just made a different decision, the outcome would be yes. completely different. So it's, I guess it's easier to have those conversations when you're with your, your child. But he was the one who really spearheaded that.
0: Okay. And how long ago was this? When did you guys set up P seven? Oh, these man.
1: Seven uh, this was at least three years ago.
0: Um,
1: okay. All I was right. at the beginning of Jan- was 15. Definitely
0: the beginning okay. of 15. Yeah. It's really insightful that you, you guys are thinking about how do you share these values. And so I'm glad that you shared them with us. Erica and I had an extended conversation about this point and the genesis behind the creation of the New Note podcast. That extended conversation, along with other special behind-the-scenes conversations, is available to patrons of the Institute for Local Innovations. Visit patreon.com slash 360 on how you can become a patron so with that you can see why i'm on the phone with my own man so i, so know, to I know i, know, I know. <laughs>
1: yeah i haven't been on the phone this long with somebody probably since high school <laughs> 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 right and even then i was probably sneaking to try to stay on a little another hour but yeah right
0: right wonderful though <laughs> The new note is a product of the Institute for Local Innovations based in New Orleans. Please visit the Institute on the web at ili360.org and consider becoming a patron. Your support will go towards the production of the podcast. As an ILI patron, you will have access to special content, including advance notice and access to future podcast episodes. Lastly, I'll leave you with this question. What is your new note? Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the patron bonus sessions for this podcast. The following audio clips are from my conversation with Erica Crenshaw, only available to ILI patrons. So thank you again for supporting our work at the Institute for Local Innovations. Excelsior.